Good morning, church. I'm so glad that you are here this morning. I have been mulling through this text for a few weeks now, and I am ever convinced that God has more in this text to say than I could ever capture and convey uh, in one morning. So I have three hours to preach. (laughs) That's not true. I will get this out on time. Uh, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. We're going to be studying from the book of Acts, chapter 9. If uh, you're using one of the Bibles under the, under the chair, it's in page 917. I noted that. I didn't memorize that. Uh, before we turn to the text, though, while you're turning to the text, before I read the text, uh, I just wanted to convey a, a quick story. It was January of 1850. There was one of the worst blizzards on recorded history occurring, and a young 15-year-old man was trudging his way to church. And he was walking through the streets of Chestershire. I'm really glad that Kimmy's not here because she would probably correct my pronunciation of that word. That's in England, in case we don't know. Chestershire, Chestershire. I don't, I don't know. But he was trudging his way to his church, and he stopped by this church that was not his. Because it was just too much, it was too cold, and he had to get out of the storm. And so this man walked into this chapel, and there was barely a crowd. Just a handful of people sitting around waiting for the preacher. And after time had passed, the preacher had not shown up. And they determined that he was stopped by the blizzard and was unable to come and preach that morning. And this young man looked over and this, what he calls an old tinkerer or or tailor, gets up, walks to the pulpit, climbs the steps, opens the big Bible that's placed there, and begins to read from Isaiah chapter 45. The passage begins with, look to God. And the man begins to proclaim that looking to Christ is our only hope for salvation. It is our only hope in this world at all. And we know this story to be true But the young man was so overcome with the conviction of the Holy Spirit that he gave his heart to Christ then and there. That young man was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, also known as the Prince of Preachers. By far one of my favorite historical figures in the church because of the impact that he had in England for revival, but also his commitment to theological study, even though he was not seminarily trained. He didn't go to seminary. He just read the Bible and read every book he could find about God. But let me read his words. I didn't want to mess this up, so I I printed it up. Charles Spurgeon says this, I was years and years upon the brink of hell. I mean in my own feeling. I was unhappy. I was desponding. I was despairing. I dreamed of hell. 
My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. I sometimes think that I might have been in darkness and despair now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm on a Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. That's from his autobiography. I highly recommend it. But I'm pretty sure that's what the Apostle Paul felt in Acts chapter 9 when he was known as Saul. So if you turn with me, we're going to read the first part and then the second part. Because it's one large story, but there's two movements within this story. And I think it's important to identify why they are that way. So beginning with Acts chapter 9, 1 through 9, God's word says this. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light fell from heaven and shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. As we read this story, it becomes very, very clear that the main idea that's coming through here is the title of this sermon, which is Jesus is Lord. But in this particular part, in this first movement, we can see that Jesus is Lord of the unsaved. Jesus is Lord even if you do not acknowledge him as Jesus Christ, as Messiah, as Lord of God. He is still Lord. Is he not? But there are some interesting points in this passage that I want to draw our attention to. So starting in verse 1, we see that Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. Now this is one time, I'm not usually a translation snob, but I want to point out that I think the NIV does a terrible job of translating this. Because the NIV says, breathing murderous threats. But the original language actually separates them out. So there's the threats that are being made, but then the action of murder that's being followed through. And I get this from the Bible. If you turn to the left just one page, possibly two, in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. This is the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr for the faith. And it says the crowd, they cast him, referring to Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This was symbolically a thing that you did to the person who was kind of in charge. He may have been a young man, but he was a learned man. 
He was on his way to be a Pharisee. He may have been a young man, but he was in charge of this crowd. And so by laying their robes at his feet, he acknowledges his acceptance of their action and approval. We can see that a little further down in Acts 8, verse 3. But Saul was, oh, sorry, Acts 8, 1. And Saul approved of his execution. Plain and simple. Luke sums it up for us and buttons it up nicely for us to know that it's actually Paul or Saul's approval of this action. But then it goes on even further, right? Not only is there a threat of idea or intent, but there's actually action followed through. And this is where verse 3 comes in. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering the house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Look, the idea that's being conveyed here is that Paul is very adamant physically and emotionally. His intent is set against the church. And he is fully justified in his actions. I'm going to jump around a bit, so bear with me. But I think it helps us to get the understanding of the setting. If you look in Philippians... You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it. Paul is giving his credentials to being a Jew. Here's what he says in Philippians 3. If anyone thinks he has reason or confidence in the, for in, confidence in the flesh, I have more. What does he say? He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That is Jewish law, ladies and gentlemen, of the people of Israel. In other words, he's saying, my lineage is from Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. He can identify the specific tribe. By the way, the favorite tribe. Am I, am I not right? And then what does he say? A Hebrew of Hebrews. He's basically saying that both of his parents are full blood. His blood lineage is 100%. And as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, catch this, a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul later identifies himself the way he views himself in 9 verse 1 and following. He was blameless in his own eyes, in his own mind, to the action which was he was pursuing. But then what does he say? And later in Philippians he says, But I counted all lost for the know, joy of knowing Christ. So even though he is justified in his mind with his actions, something happens to him that he takes all of that and he throws it away. And that's what happens here in chapter 9. So we can see that Saul has this intent to go and persecute the church. He's already noted as ravaging the church so far. He's done a really good job in Jerusalem. And now he wants to take it outside of Jerusalem because he hears there's a, a group of people of the way Christianity, followers of Christ, in Damascus. And he wants to go disrupt their operations just the same way that he did in Jerusalem. But here's the thing. Before I go too far into what's going to happen, I want to point out one thing that when I read this absolutely blew my mind so if it doesn't blow your mind, please don't tell me, because it totally blew my mind, and maybe I'm a little slower than most. This is a further fulfillment of Acts 1.8. I'm going to read that for you. This is Jesus talking. 
And he said, oh, sorry, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. How many missionary journeys did Paul take? Three. And where did he go? The ends of the earth. The ends of the known earth. And where do his words go today? The ends of the earth. Look, I think that it's no mistake that Jesus said that and then called Saul to be his apostle. But let's keep going. So he asked for permission from the high priests. He needed legal permission under Roman law from the high priests to arrest anyone. Okay? And so he got that permission that he was going to take this to Damascus and he was going to arrest Christians and drag them to Jerusalem for trial. He was getting his ducks in a row. His intent was set. He knew exactly what he was doing. But what happened? Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I'm not going to focus on him falling to the ground and argue whether he was on a horse or a donkey or walking. I'm not going to focus on the direction of travel, the road he was taking. I'm going to focus on Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because there's so much that we can unpack from this passage, this word, this sentence right here. Traditionally, in Hebrew culture, if you say someone's name twice, Robert, Robert, you're my friend. It declares a level of intimacy and knowledge. Wait a minute. How do I get this information? How do I know? I mean, Bruce is just trying to make a point of why he's repeating himself. Maybe God has a stutter. Saul, Saul, how are you doing? But we can see in Genesis chapter 22 that God calls out and says, Abraham, Abraham, when he's about to sacrifice his son on the altar. We can see in Exodus 3 that God calls out to Moses from a bush. Moses, Moses. Okay? We can also see later on that there is this idea in 1 Samuel where God speaks to Samuel in the night and says, Samuel, Samuel. Those examples I would call pivotal moments in their lives. These are moments when God called them out of something into something greater. So there's this idea when a name is repeated that there's a knowledge of who the person is and the direction of travel they're on. And we can see that very clearly with Saul. We can see that Jesus is saying, you're persecuting. Why are you doing this? He knew Saul's heart. He knew his intent, and he knew where he was at. And God intervened and cried out, Saul, Saul. But there's one other aspect that's identified in the Old Testament and the New Testament with repeating a name twice. 
there is a deep emotional aspect to it. You can see this in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 18. Terrible references, so I wrote these down. Where David's son Absalom is killed and he cries out grieving, Absalom, Absalom. We can see it additionally when Jesus is talking about Israel and he cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you've missed the point. You do not see who I am. But you also see this in uh, kind of two places at the same time, right? Psalm 22, and I think it's Matthew chapter 27, where Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out, My God, my God, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? So there's this emotion that comes with the repeating of someone's name. There's an intimacy that's established and an emotion that builds from it. And here's what we see about this. He knows that Paul, or Saul at the time, is persecuting the church. He's persecuting those who believe in Jesus. He has got his ducks in a row. He's got the permission to go and arrest people and bring them back and try them. That is his intent. His heart, we see, is breathing threats and murder. So he has the heart, he has the intent, and then some random dirt road between Jerusalem and Damascus, God finds him. But look, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? I'm going to hang there for just a second because it's important for us to recognize when you belong to Christ, you are Jesus's. You belong to Christ. Not only does he see the hurt and the pain and the suffering and the agony and the, the turmoil and the strife, he identifies with it. Saul is persecuting the church, but Christ identifies as it being him. He is saying, you are persecuting my people. You're persecuting me. Why are you persecuting me? And then Paul responds, or Saul responds to him, who are you, Lord? That word, Lord, it's a very interesting one. In that culture, in that time, if you were a Jew, the only person you called Lord was God. To say it to anyone else was borderline blasphemy. But as a Roman citizen, as a Roman citizen, if you said Lord to anybody but Caesar or a magistrate, well, that's just treason. And yet, Saul uses that word. Because that word means, literally, one who is holding all the cards. It is someone who you have subverted yourself, of subservience yourself to. So you are a servant to that person. Saul was laying on the ground, blind. 
He knew that he was bested by whatever or whoever was there. And he had become their servant. That becomes important in just a little bit. But I'm going to hold that one for just a second. And he said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now that we've understood this, I want to reread Spurgeon's words. Because we could speculate, what was he doing for three days? What was going through his mind? But I believe that the Holy Spirit was at work in his heart, and I think that Spurgeon so beautifully captures what goes through all of our hearts. That I was years and years and years upon the brink of hell, I was unhappy. I was desponding. I was despairing. I dreamed of hell. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. I believe at this moment, Jesus just completely shattered Saul's world. Everything that he knew had just been turned on its side. It has been topsy-turvy for him. And so while waiting there in the darkness, I think that he was just reflecting upon what had just happened. He thought he was so right. He was completely justified. And now he sits there and he wonders, was I really wrong? Again, the text doesn't tell us exactly what he was thinking, but we could pretty much speculate something along those lines. Because he's human, and we're human, and that's exactly what I'd be doing in that moment. Be like, whoa, where did I go wrong? And then we come to this second part of the story. And I call this that Jesus is Lord of the saved. So if you believe in Jesus and you hold him as Lord and Savior, the emphasis is on his lordship over your life. So here we go. Acts 9, 10 through 19. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas... Look for a man named, of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard of this many, uh, from many about this man how much evil he does to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief of priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. 
for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying on his hand, laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to, that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. A couple interesting points that I want to draw our attention to this morning. The first is, did you notice that the Lord referred to Ananias by a single name? Well, didn't we just spend an entire time talking about the intimacy of the double name? Didn't we just talk about the passion and the emotion behind the double name? So why wouldn't God speak to Ananias with an Ananias, Ananias? Well, I think I have a theory on this, and you'll have to bear with me, because we just don't know. But here's my theory. Who was Ananias? It says a disciple. Just your everyday, average, sitting in the pew, tinkerer, tailor, waiting on the pastor. Just your average disciple. And so the understanding is that he was a disciple who followed Jesus. And since he followed Jesus, there was already a relationship there. There was no call to something different because he was already doing what the Lord had told him. So the single name is perfectly awesome because he doesn't need a double name to get his attention. His thoughts and intentions are already on Jesus He's just waiting for the go. He's like a faucet. You walk up to a faucet and you turn the knob and the water comes. That was Ananias. Just waiting for the Lord. That's why the single name. But then he explains to him, hey, go find this guy Saul. You need to, uh, you need to get him. Pray for him. He's blind. And if you didn't catch this, I'm going to point it out now. Ananias objects. It's pretty obvious. It reminds me of the story of Abraham and Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. When God, in relationship, talks to Abraham. Doesn't even say his name. Just comes on the scene and says, yo, dude, I'm going to do this. I am going to destroy that city. You feel me? Right? We're going to go ahead and annihilate that place. And Abraham's like, whoa, wait a minute, God. What if there's 50 righteous, 50 faithful? Would you spare the city? God's like, yeah, sure. Well, what if it's 40? Can you take 40? God's like, okay, sure, 40. Well, how about 30? Okay, 30. 20? Okay, 10. Right? I don't think, and we can see this here, and we can see this in the story of Abraham, that God objects to our questions. You notice Jesus didn't scold Ananias. Ananias, you fool, you 
weak faith maroon. How dare you question my authority? He understands the humanity of Ananias. And so when Ananias says, I've heard of this guy. Best case scenario, I die. Right? I go talk to this guy. He's going to kill me. But then Jesus says this. Go. For he is chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. My favorite part right here. So Ananias departed. Took one objection. And he did it. He obeyed. And he greets him, brother. Did you catch that? I don't recall any sinner's prayer. I don't recall any altar call to come forward and give your heart to Jesus. I don't recall anything on Ananias' part. Church, hear me when I say this. You're not responsible for getting someone saved. You're responsible for obeying the command and call of God. And I point this out and I say this because we have this emphasis on evangelism, which is one of my favorite subjects. I love people. And I love seeing people come to Christ. But here's the catch. We as a church need to realign what we determine and have decided is success in evangelism. Evangelism is not getting somebody saved. Newsflash, you don't have that power. Salvation belongs to God and God alone. Jesus is Lord of the unsaved as much as he is Lord of the saved. Our job our responsibility is obedience. 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 If the Lord puts on your heart to share the gospel and you do not, that's a good time to be repenting. But if the Lord puts it on your heart to share the gospel, you share the gospel and nothing happens, Rejoice in your obedience. Walk faithful in the God who graciously gave you that opportunity. Now I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm going to tell you a story because we didn't talk about sharing the gospel stories this morning. So I wanted to share one of my own. It's one of my favorite, I shouldn't say favorite. It's one of my most memorable gospel presentation stories. I was driving to a Bible study. I was already running late. Work got out late. I was kind of frantic, and I saw on the side of the road two individuals by a car that was broken down. And I felt compelled. It was like an, it was like, uh, I probably should go help. It was literally, I felt compelled to the point where I went around the block to come back so I could park next to them and find out what was going on. And I got out of the car, and sure enough, they're having car trouble. Their battery died. I think it's the alternator, but I can at least jump enough that they can get somewhere. 
get done doing all this. And it was uh, two individuals, and the lady looks at me and says, thank you. May karma return to you tenfold. Let me give you a little insight into my brain and how it works. If you say anything to me spiritual, game on. We're going down to gospel town. Okay? So I began to say, oh, you're spiritual. Well, so am I, and I show her my tattoo because it tells me that by grace I am saved. Not of my works, lest anyone should boast, but a gift freely given by God. And I proclaim the gospel, and then she starts talking about her Buddhist faith, and then the other individual who happened to be trans starts talking about his entire story about how he hated church and the reason why. And I listened, and I shared the gospel. Ladies and gentlemen, I shared the gospel three times that time, and the last one was my favorite because I asked them, since they were both spiritual, can I pray for you? Look, when someone rejects your gospel presentation, ask them if you can pray for them. Here's why. Trade secret. It gives you one more chance to preach the gospel. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me and my friend. Lord, I pray you open their heart and their mind to your salvation. Lord, I pray you move on their heart. Look, my friend, Dr. Matt Queen, says it this way, and I love it. I've said it a lot. Aaron quoted me last week. If you know enough of the gospel to be saved by the gospel, then you know enough of the gospel to share the gospel. And our success measurement should be in whether or not we were faithful to start. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just plant the seed. It doesn't have to be complete, encompassing all the crazy nuances of soteriology, which is the study of science or uh, salvation, right? Or hermeneutics, which is how you read the Bible, or other big theology words, which, you know, we could get into. It doesn't have to be clouded by that. It's as simple and sweet as Jesus loves you so much that he died for you because you are separated from him. And only he can bridge that gap. Only he can make things right. So what we have here is this idea. Ananias was told, go, and he obeyed. Saul was told, go, and he obeyed as well. Did you catch that? The same Lord that loves Saul is the same Lord that loved Ananias. And even though Ananias fades into obscurity, we never hear from him again. He is not the same Ananias as Ananias and Sapphira. I want to get that right out there, right? He wasn't literally slain in this period, right? This is not the same Ananias. He literally obscures away into nothing. But Jesus remains. And how great is his reward that he had a hand in the salvation of Saul to be known as Paul to write nearly two-thirds of the New Testament. We have to, got to reevaluate how we gauge success in evangelism. Success is just faithfulness. But here's where it comes. There's a hope 
And there's a challenge. Here, here's the hope. Saul was a murderer. Saul was a self-righteous zealot. Saul was everything that I hate about religion, if I be honest. Saul is the church you go to where they tell you your faith isn't enough because you're dealing with some thing. And because pain is personal, that thing can be as big and monumentous as cancer or it could be as small and seemingly insignificant as just, I got passed over promotion again. This guy got promoted and I do twice the work he does. It could be as significant and monumental as the death of a loved one who you care deeply for and miss. My grandfather passed away in 2007. There are days when I literally cry because I miss him so much. Because he was that instrumental in my salvation. He's the one who showed me the love of Jesus beyond anybody else. That pain is real to me. It makes me cry. You wouldn't cry hearing that Calvin Gale passed away. But I weep. Because I know the loss. But I rejoice because I know the hope that I have and I'm going to see him again. The hope is Christ is with us. Christ sees us. Whether you are a Saul and you are, have turned your back on religion or whether you're an Ananias and you're just faithful and willing to obey, Jesus sees you. You're not some faceless person in a crowd. He's very intimately aware of who you are, the heart you have, and the trajectory your life is on. And if you're not a believer, he wants to change that. And if you are a believer, he wants to change that. So here's the challenge. I'm going to pick on believers first. If you are here today and you believe in Jesus Christ, who's your Saul? Who's the person that you think of and you're like, oh, I can't, I can't share the gospel with them. You know what they would say to me? But here's the point. If your disgust and contempt for that person overshadows the love and compassion we are called to, you're the problem, not them. We must have a heart to look past the external and see the image bearer of God that stands before us and see the thing in them that Jesus loves. If we can't look past the external and see the thing that Jesus loves, then we are the problem. We need the challenge to wake up and obey. Salvation does not belong to us. It's not for us to choose who, when, where, and why. It's God's and God's alone. Our job is to submit to the Lordship of Christ as being saved and say, send me. 
Even if I bumble it up, let me share my story. Let me share what Christ has done for me. Now, for you who are here this morning, if you have not put faith and trust in Jesus Christ, here's a challenge for you. Let today be the day of your salvation. Let today be the day where you acknowledge that, man, life is messed up. And there is nothing that I can do to make it better. Sickness and disease fall on everyone. Wealth and poverty are fleeting. The only hope that anyone really has is an eternal one. My friend, if you are here today, doesn't matter what you've done, who you've hurt, what thing you have in your closet that you're ashamed of at night. Christ's blood is sufficient to cover all of those things. And there is freedom. Because look, I'm not perfect. I could tell you things that I did this last week that would make you go, and you want to be a youth pastor? You call yourself a follower of Christ? You hypocrite? You're right. I am a hypocrite. And I know this. But listen when I say this. How sweetly we can embrace the love of God when we first identify how far his love had to go to capture us. To free us from Satan's grip. No one is too far. So today, if you are here and you have not put faith and trust in Jesus Christ, do so. You don't need me. Although I would love to talk with you, so would Aaron, so would, I think, any member of this church. Because it's a cause of celebration. So in closing, I'm going to read, this is a, a book called All of Grace by Charles Spurgeon. I told you, it was one of my favorites. This is what it means to turn your heart to Christ. Here's what Spurgeon says. Remember that the man who truly repents is never satisfied with his own repentance. We can never do more, repent perfectly, than we can live perfectly. However, however pure of tears, there will always be some dirt. There will always be something to be repented of, even in our best repentance. That's me. Even in my best repentance, there's always something that is clinging to me. But listen. To repent is to change your mind about sin and Christ and all the great things of God. There is sorrow implied in this, but the main point is that the turning of the heart from sin to Christ, if there be this turning, you have the essence of true repentance. That is all it takes. Not some prayer, not baptism, but an earnest repentance turning to God saying, God, I cannot do this on my own. I am dying inside, crying out, save me from myself. That is the earnestness of repentance, that you look to God, knowing that only God can make things right. That is our challenge today. Let me pray.